Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the nitty-gritty realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones, as always your host, and normally we come to you weekly, every Friday, to discuss, among other things, the content of Another Weekend's, our kind of open-minded, gracious Christian guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them and the highlights therein. But this is a special edition where we're talking with two Mockingbird contributors, Will McDavid and Todd Brewer, on the state of theology in the church. We'll start with Will McDavid. He'll tell us a little bit of how he see, saw the body of Christ in 2015. Then we'll get a little bit of a reading guide, the best books theologically speaking from a Mockingbird perspective of 2015. Without further ado, Will McDavid. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to be well. Amen. Here we are for the first time on the Mockingcast, Will McDavid. Not the first time he's contributed to the website, though. He's uh, prolific. But his most recent post was about the state of the church kind of in 2015. Will, how you doing? Doing good. You're coming to us from your roots. Yes, South Georgia, uh, Macon. Which rhymes with Bacon. It does. It does. Which doesn't be, begin with P. <laughs> it doesn't rhyme with, you know, with T and trouble and the music man trope. But so you did a piece around uh, basically dealing with, hey, here's it's a it's online. So you can't write about everything. But you write about some significant branches, at least in the United States of the body of Christ. And it's almost yeah. like it's almost like I looked at it as like if you were doing ecclesiastical fantasy football. Like these would be like a scouting report. Like how do you draft your team? Like who's, who looks good? You know, fantasy football is, you know, it, it, it's people are rampant about this thing. Yeah. So, so how did you, you mention a few people, you mentioned Roman Catholics, you mentioned mainline Protestants, specifically Presbyterians and Methodists and ABC, which is not a, a phonetic group, but the American Baptists, uh, the non-denominational folks get a shout out, as do the Episcopalians get their own separate entry outside of mainline Protestants, and a lot of ink is spelled is spilled rather on the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. So, before we get into the substance of your picks and evaluation of last season and heading into this season, give us a little bit of your metric, like when you, as an ecclesiastical fantasy football, you know, uh, player and picker. How are you, how are you gauging the talent out there? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think, um, you know, definitely trying not to make any kind of judgments about which beliefs or, or doctrines denominationally are 
accurate or not accurate, but just sort of looking at um, a few things. I mean, one of them, how much the denomination is sort of offering a distinctive outlook on Christianity that is true to who they are, um, and also how compelling a figure it is in contemporary culture right now. And I think those two things are very much in tension um, most of the time, probably. So it's and almost like dating, right? You want to date someone that's like, you know, they're representative of where they've been, but they're also, you know, reinventing it for where they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a Venn diagram and you're looking for the magic center, you know? All right. So that means Venn diagram, you got to have three things. So you only named two, right? We had... Um, compelling to sort of contemporary culture, um, offering their own, being true to who they are as a tradition. Um, and I'm trying to think what would be the third thing on the Venn diagram. Probably pews. Pews. Pews would be one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Facilities. Um, not actually, but I don't Grace. know. Let's go with the two. Let's just go with a two-circle diagram for now. Okay, we're going with two. We're going to fidelity to the past and a sort of fresh vision for the now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So on that score, who ranks in the top, you know, who tops your list? Um, I think you have to say the Catholic Church right now because with Francis, what they basically got is they are being – completely true to themselves and as much as, you know, post-Vatican II, um, they're being completely true to the Catholic Church since whenever Vatican II ended. Um, but the Pope has sort of cast it in this tone, this new tone of humility and sort of welcomingness that I think is, I mean, tonally it's completely true of the Catholic Church, but it's not always that branch of the Church that sort of ends up in the Vatican. Um, and it's a tone that I think is allowing the church to have a lot of credibility in the contemporary world right now, because however much their substance might dis might diverge from the substance of what a lot of people nowadays think about certain issues. You really just, it's hard to argue with, um, the figure of Francis in a way, you know, when you see him kissing the person out on the tarmac at the airport. And when you just, some of these interactions, I think you see, Christianity in a very pure and personal and compelling form. So is the take is the takeaway from this for churches, both large and small and denominationally and locally, that you can say the truth in a full-throated way, in a full-throttled way, if you say it with tears in your eyes and with open arms? I think that's a really good way to put it, yeah. Okay, so let's go. That that's your first tier. Uh, in the kind of middling and struggling range <laughs> are your 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 mainline Protestants, basically your Presbyterians with the with the strange cross and the flame, United Methodists, <laughs> and your American Baptist. I mean, these are folks who you think it's not that there aren't things to admire there. I mean, they're generally warm and often welcoming people, but there's something lacking at least in your, you know, binary Venn diagram? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. You know, I think um, 
think there's a lot of wonderful Methodist churches and PCUSA churches and some of those other denominations. I think there's some wonderful churches around, but as a denomination, I think you just don't necessarily see them offering much right now that is distinctive. Um, the sort of most distinctive thing that Methodist and PCUSA, as far as I understand, maybe PCUSA doesn't believe this, but the most distinctive thing they're offering is sort of Arminianism, you know? And, and for, for those folks uh, out there that are not steeped in theological lingo, that means, hey, you chose him. He didn't choose you. <laughs> yeah, that's not a great export, you know? Well, it depends if the girl has low self-esteem, but actually, yeah, you could argue either way. But, okay, so, you know, there's not a lot there. They kind of have never met a cultural trend they didn't like. On to, it's fascinating, you spend some significant time, you also spend some time on non-denominationalism, and I'll ask people to just go to mbird.com and read the piece, um, which is really, there's a lot there. But you, you, you spend a lot of time on the Presbyterian Church of America. This is almost like the amount of, the amount of ink you spill, I think it's almost like your Cinderella story possibility. <laughs> but it's almost like the Michael Jordan that needs the Dean Smith to coach them. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really funny metaphor. Um, yeah, I mean, the way that I look at it, you know, Mockingbird has sometimes in the past we've but a little less ready to talk about sanctification than they are. But if you're judging them strictly from their own sort of denominational um, features in the past, you see this bizarre turn to um, certain Catholic doctrines that just haven't really had a place in Calvinism. And it's this things like virtue ethics or things like um, a sort of, extremely embodied eschatology and I'm all for embodied eschatology, but, um, so just for the, for, uh, you know, I think of that, um, scene in Ghostbusters too, when Bill Murray's out to dinner with Sigourney Weaver and he goes, Ray, you're scaring the straights. <laughs> so virtue ethics is basically like, I'm doing a good job. If I can internally score kind of my heart, my behavior. And when I, if I could draw a bell curve and kind of, you know, I'm acquiring the skills to be a moral person yeah. within my own reach. Yeah, and the way that virtue ethics avoids being moralistic is it posits um, participation in Christ as the sort of central um, theme. So I think you've seen the PCA, too, trying to talk a lot about union with Christ um, without really realizing that that's pretty much just an Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic um, Viewpoint. Some some people think that Luther was about that too. The Finns, people in Finland think that. But um, yeah, you just it really doesn't sit easily with historical Calvinism, and the the attempts I've seen to navigate that tension haven't been that persuasive. But and, and embo an embodied eschatology, basically, uh, I, I take that to mean like we're at a blockbuster film, right? And you paid like. $18 for the ticket, $20 for the popcorn soda deal, you know, the upgrade in the seats. And the reveal is just too soon. Like there's too much of the, what you're hoping for at the end is freighted into the beginning or middle of the film. So that there's not kind of a, there's not kind of enough of a horizon in the film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 
we, you know, I think as far as I understand traditional Christian teaching on the eschaton, we, you know, it will be the renewal of the earth rather than a assumption to some disembodied airy heaven. You know, we will receive new resurrection bodies. But then you hear people talking about like vocation or talking about hipster arts and crafts like pottery or like screen printing as things that are legitimate expressions of humanity that will, you know, sort of maybe last into heaven. And, you know, as a Christian blogger, that just upsets me a little bit because I'm assuming that's a vocation at least that won't be around. Now there'll be blogs in the new creation. You're going to be tapping away at the keys and, and there'll be like an operating system with no glitches. You'll never see the spiral rainbow of death. I mean, you'll just be pounding away endlessly. <laughs> now, really, the the Cinderella story, who I think, if my guess is if somebody said, hey, where could I go? There's no perfect church. But where could I go, you know, on a Sunday to have a decent experience? And, you know, I'm walking there on broken glass. Where could I hear something that would tell me the mess that I am is okay now and could be on a profound journey that's non-judgmental into a place of healing and wholeness. I'm going to guess your Cinderella story and your secret franchise player is the Episcopal church. Um, yeah, I think, I think it actually would be, you know, as a, as a place to go, because you get the, you get the liturgy, um, and the book of common prayer and that stuff that, I think just really speaks to somebody regardless of what the preaching is like. And they are um, extremely welcoming places right now, I guess, unless you're very conservative and then maybe would be perfectly welcoming, but they are these wonderfully welcoming places right now. And I think that it would definitely be the place to start. Now, eventually you would probably end up reading some Lutheran and more kind of, reformed theology um and you might sort of look for a little bit more theological substance from some other places but as a as a place to go um i think because of the liturgy and um you know it, it's it's just a reliable option i think and it, it it will be welcoming and it will tend to not be too moralistic although occasionally with social justice you can get some episcopal church moralism but yeah for for an actual message of grace and welcome that would probably be my pick and communion is not welch's i mean you get fully leaded at the table oh yeah you do well you do 100 percent. which is a nice thing i mean you know now is there an option if you're a real sinner can you say i need jack daniels with the wafer <laughs> or there's not that option not that i'm aware of but you know, there's a lot of things about the Episcopal Church that we don't know, and it's in flux a lot right now. So who knows what you'll be able to get at the communion rail a few decades? Yeah, all litur all liturgy is you know it's all the balance between form and freedom, right? So who knows? I mean, <laughs> if you get the right liturgical bartender, you know, especially maybe in Kentucky or something. Yeah. Well, well, well thank you. Uh, I appreciate, it. and we're all going to be waiting with bated breath in 12 months for your picks <laughs> going into 2017 in the Fantasy right. Church League. Sounds good. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you.
General Theological Seminary in New York. And the author of Mockingbird's 2015 Best Theology Books of the Year posts. Hey, Todd. Hi. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent in this. It's warming up. Uh, you know, the benefits of climate change. The weather is just totally unpredictable. You know? <laughs> Thanks for having me. How are things in New York? Uh, <clears throat> it's cold here. Uh, today is the second day that it's actually been, you know, seasonably winter. So seasonably winter. I like that. Yeah. So tell us what's your rubric for, you know, I know you're a professor, you teach New Testament. So there's a grading rubric, right? Where you think, uh, you know, (laughs) an A paper is, although students might think an A paper is I turned it in and like, there's not a lot of grammatical errors, but (laughs) you have a sort of thing. Hey, it's imaginative. It's good. There's excellence. What's yeah. your rubric for a book to make it onto the Mockingcast best of theological books? Sure. So uh, it's not all that scientific. There's, I mean, I have a couple criteria. <laughs> the big one is uh, I get to the end of the year and I look at my bookshelf and I go, what came out this year? Uh, or I review my Amazon purchases. Um, but I'm actually sort of constantly on the lookout um, during the year, it's the fifth or sixth year I've done this now for books that would, that would be, would qualify or could be good. Um, so the criteria is basically, is it good? First and foremost, um, <laughs> when I read it, did I enjoy it? Did it, does it make uh, a really good, f- uh, fun theological, uh, uh, sort of, uh, contribution to, uh, something that, you know, justification or, uh, sin and redemption, um, uh, New Testament, etc. Um, so there's an existential good. bent to it. Like, yeah, you, you try to stay away from the speculative da- angels on heads of pins sort of thing and uh, practical everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Really good study on, uh, like last year, there was a really good commentary by Simon Gathercall on the Gospel of Thomas. And, uh, it's, it's phenomenal, but it's, you know, it's, it's doesn't really quite, fit the bill for either something that Mockingbird uh, readers will be interested in or something which I think makes a meaningful contribution to uh, theology for the church. Um, it's not, it's, it's not a, it's wonderful, but it's not, doesn't fit the bill. So, so yeah. So is it good? And two, is it something that uh, sort of, you know, has verve <laughs> for theology and, uh, uh, and, and, and what the church is all about? So let's start with your advanced winner. I mean, if somebody has massive disposable income, lots of discretionary time, and has a, a theological palette that leans towards the gourmet, what are, they, what are, what you, what are you going to recommend for them? Well, obviously, the first uh, is the second book on the list this year. Um, John Barclay's Paul and the Gift would, would be your, the go-to top book this year. Um, I, I read it, uh, when it immediately, when it came out, I blocked out, you know, four days of my schedule and, and powered through it. Um, and that's almost 200 pages a day. Yeah, that's about right. And we're not talking Harry Potter font or like, (laughs) I I found it as enjoyable as Harry Potter. I mean, it's a sweeping study on Paul's, on, on Paul's use of grace in conversation with second temple Jewish texts. Um, and what, and the end result is kind of twofold. One is it makes, 
it may, it becomes and it makes a contribution to uh, Pauline studies, the most significant of which in the last 40 years. I mean, and the second is what emerges is a Paul who is radical in his own time and really fruitful for uh, the church and justification by faith. Uh, I mean, what emerges is very much an Augustinian Lutheran understanding of Paul without all of the baggage of having a kind of idiosyncratic view of Judaism as being works righteousness and legalistic and all those sorts of things. So, so it's for people that are not New Testament studies buffs, the, yeah. the kind of new perspective on Paul, basically for centuries, that perspective, right, says that, hey, we're reading Paul a little too much. We're reading a little too much Luther, a little too much Augustine into Paul. And this is yeah. really a lot more social and cosmic, yeah. which has some great historiography behind it, but it almost takes away the existential stuff that makes Paul relevant in every generation. Yeah. What happened in Pauline studies, if you'll allow me, is in 1977, E.P. Sanders uh, published a book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And the end result of that was that Paul and Second Temple Judaism all agreed on the doctrine of grace. What grace meant, uh, Judaism was a religion of grace, Christianity is a religion of grace. And so following on E.P. Sanders, Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright uh, basically uh, presume or uh, say outright that Paul and, and Judaism do not differ on the topic of grace. Um, and what, what's, what actually is going on, if you look at Sanders in, in conversation with the Barclay book, is they're all Sanders notes they're all saying grace, but he doesn't note that they actually mean very different things when they use the word grace. Um, so, uh, and Bark, what Barclay does is he's go, he goes back to all of the Jewish short sources and says, wait a second, uh, wisdom of Solomon talks about grace, but he means something very different from what Paul means. Um, it's Paul, Paul for Paul, uh, grace is given to the ungodly. For wisdom of Solomon, grace is given to, uh, to first to the righteous, uh, Israel nation, nation of Israel, and not to the unrighteous Egyptians. So for him, the paradigmatic event of grace is the, uh, is, is not Abraham as it is for Paul, but it is, but it's in fact the Exodus where all of the Egyptians are slaughtered in the Red Sea. Um, and why were they? Because they were unrighteous. They were unfitting recipients of of grace and, and the gift. Isn't there an apocalypse of Abraham where Abraham like flies around like on a flying carpet and zaps like pagans or something? <laughs> uh, it's been a while since I've looked at that. Um, you can but, get back to me on that one. It's, yeah. Getting into the weeds, but okay. So <laughs> this sound that sounds like an excellent advanced pick. Now get to the other end of the spectrum. And by the way, everybody check out the post on mbird.com, but your, your basic beginner, like somebody that's theologically curious, but doesn't have, uh, you know, the big budget or the palette for, you know, nine syllable theological terms. What's yeah. your go to for them? Well, I, I mean, I really like, uh, uh Ma shoot, uh, Ma Marty Martin. Um, his, his book. Oh gosh. Remind me of the title. Uh, uh, shoot, it's justification, uh, justifying faith. Um, it's got the big Lutheran, uh, symbol on the front. What's it called? Ah, uh, is this on your, this is on your list? Yeah, yeah. The Ted, I was thinking this, the Ted Peters? Ted P, oh, Ted Peters. The, the foreword is by, um, Marty Martin. Yeah, I really like Ted Peters' book. 
Uh, it's a little denser, but here's what, but what you get with it are all of these little, uh, very helpful kind of existential, um, uh, sort of, here's what this might mean for daily life, which you don't always get in a systematic theology. So that's, uh, I really like that book. The other one, which I would say, if you're for a complete novice, I would really go for Mockingbird's own law and gospel book. Um, that book I really like. Um, it was in many senses, it's, it, it's the best thing since I say this in the post, it's the best thing for a, for the last hundred years. Um, cause so a hundred years ago, you have Werner Ellert's book, law and gospel, which is really highly theological. He's responding to Karl Barth, uh, but, and it's sort of beginning the Lutheran Renaissance of the early 20th century. But, uh, Mockingbird's law and gospel is, uh, is even better. Um, not only is it sort of thick and meaty theologically, at every turn, there's lots of good illustrations, lots of kind of, hey, what might this mean to the anxious person in the pews? Um, yeah, so. I almost think you could give that to a non-Christian. Yeah. It's so existentially accessible. Uh, you know, my favorite phrase in there is how compliment, how the law can come in the form of compliments. Oh, what a great right. paper you did. What was wrong? That was the best paper you ever written. What was wrong with all the other papers I wrote? You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's great stuff. Yeah. A few years ago, um, so I was living in England and, and coming back. And every time I'd come back, people would say, Oh, you look really good. Have you lost weight? Um, and, and they're trying to pay me a compliment. But when, after the third time I went, was I really heavy before? Like, I, I didn't, I didn't think I was, but apparently I am. No. By the way, our readers, our, our listeners can't see, but you do look great. I mean, you know, it's not just the camera angle, you know. You, you look <laughs> but I mean, in closing, could you just give our readers a tip for how to become good theological readers? Oh, um, so, well, you have to start somewhere. Buy right? a pipe, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Buy a pipe, look like Karl Barth. Uh, and Rudolf Bultmann. No, I, I would say, um, you've got to start somewhere, right? So if, if you, in the best way, as in everything, uh, the best way to find out what good other works are is through recommendation, right? So, I mean, I would start with, uh, Mockingbird has a really good list of kind of beginners and intermediate and advanced. And then if you, if you look at those, then you see who, who endorses those books. So, uh, and, and then go read their stuff. Um, so you begin to sort of create a kind of network of people who you know and trust and is, and are good. Um, yeah. So like, um, oh, there's a, a book recently that, that was, uh, endorsed by Susan Eastman. And I, and I know Susan Eastman, at, she's the New Testament professor at Duke, really good. Uh, and I, and I meet, immediately caught my interest. I went, oh, I need to read this book. Um, so yeah, so you sort of create, start cultivating a, a kind of friend network of trusted, uh, trusted people who are both good and interesting. So if you see on the back of a 700 page book that someone says, I enjoyed this more than Harry Potter, right? that they need to release a new copy of that book with that endorsement on the back. That would triple yeah. its sales. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so like, if Stephen Paulson blurbs a book, Stephen Paulson's a Luther uh, seminary professor in Minnesota. 
um, I'm, I'm going to read that book because if he likes it, I'm pretty darn sure I'm going to like it. But I know that because I've read his, uh, Martin Luther, uh, was it Martin Luther for armchair theologians book? Uh, it's, it's, and so really like that. He was a mockingbird speaker a few years ago. Um, yeah. You got to know who your friends are. Exactly. Well, thanks, Todd. I, I appreciate you taking some time out, not just to write the post, but to talk with all our listeners. Sure. Happy to. Boys working on empty. Is that the kind of way to face the burning heat? I just think about my baby. I'm so full of love I could barely eat. Thanks again for tuning into the special edition of the Mockingcast. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can get deeper into the content at our website, ember.com. And please, if you do enjoy this, share it with a friend and maybe give us a review on iTunes. It's very easy to do. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Baby found me I was three days on a drunken sin I woke with the walls around me Nothing in her room but an empty crib And I was burning up a fever I didn't care much how long I lived But I swear I thought I dreamed her She never asked me once about the wrong I did